Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta per social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I try to sell my business during the COVID epidemic? Um, and and we've already done a show. We did a show fairly early on in this series, uh, probably back in April of uh, year, which would be uh, 2019, uh, relatively speaking, um, and and with Roger Fuhrer of Brady Ware Capital, and we talked about, you know, should 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 I hire somebody to help me me sell sell my business? And I thought that was a useful conversation. And given the download metrics, it seems like a lot of you felt that that was a useful conversation as well. And uh, you know, I wanted to return to the topic of of selling your business. Um, in a more specific way. And as most of you know, who have been longtime listeners or consistent listeners, um, we've done a series of COVID specific tactical podcasts, and they're a little bit different than the normal fare we have in the decision vision podcast. But we felt that it was, it was necessary to acknowledge that um, the world was changing, continues to change and will have changed in some in many material ways that that will necessitate a different decision-making process and, and offer different decision-making inputs into some very important decisions that have to be made. And there are fewer decisions that are more important than, than selling your business. Um, for, for most people who are business owners, the business is their primary, perhaps even their sole source of wealth. Um, and so clearly you have to get that right because it has impact on your financial future um, and perhaps even the financial future of, uh, of um, ongoing generations. Um, and it, it's also, frankly, a decision that is very hard to reverse. Um, you know, once you sell a business, generally speaking, it's no givesies, backsies. And if you don't like the deal that you got a year after the fact, well, um, generally speaking, that's 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 kind of tough. Um, there, are, I guess, there are some ways you can kind of claw something back, but those are very hard. They're they are very expensive, and those have very uncertain outcomes. And you know, as somebody who's in the business of appraising businesses and also does um, transaction advisory, um, but not not in the way Brady Ware Capital does it, because I don't actually go out and market a business. I just I just advise people on on kind of how to position a business for sale and advise them on how to select representation and so forth. But I, I used to do what they do, but I, I, I hated it. So I stopped doing it. Um, I, I like the role that I'm in uh, much better as a, a referee more than an advocate. 
Um, but but you know the question comes up now that uh, you know is it is it worthwhile to try to sell sell my business? Um, it, it, it's a reasonable position to take to think that with all this uncertainty, um, perhaps are cautious that they're much more choosy or that prices are depressed because maybe everybody wants to sell their business, right? You, you may want to sell your business because you're planning to sell your business your, your, at whatever age was your target age. And then this virus had the audacity to show up and, and, and mess up your plans. It, it, it could be that, you know, you, you just don't see kind of what the path for it is in a way that you want to pursue it. Um, I think it's perfectly reasonable to kind of look at this environment and say, look, man, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. Um, you know, I, I like running a business, but you know, when I did, so I really didn't, I really didn't count on having to manage through uh, a period of global once in a century pandemic, massive social upheaval and murder hornets. And it's just not really, it's not what I signed up for, but maybe somebody else wants to sign up for it and, and you're going to sell the business or, or maybe, you know, you just, you just don't know what to do and you're not sure you're not sure you're the person to kind of lead lead your business through that and have the resources to absorb what may be you know very slow revenues coming in particularly if you're in the hospitality industry and you kind of want to get what you can and and, and get out or there may be other reasons as well but the point is is that i think there's 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 likely an assumption out there that that you just can't sell a business um, but I think we're going to learn that, you know, life is going on. It's, it's adapting for sure, but, you know, commerce does go on in, in this country, you know, even with lockdowns, commerce does go on capital needs to be deployed, wants to generate a return, but you may have to temper your expect expectations and you may have to approach this differently. So anyway, I, I hope I've convinced you that this is a worthwhile topic and, and you'll keep listening through the end because I do think this is going to be a very interesting conversation and, and it's going to give you a lot of great information as you think about, you know, whether, whether trying to sell your business at this particular point in time is, is a worthwhile exercise to pursue. And joining us to help talk us through this is uh, my colleague and friend Cliff Bishop, who is president of Bradyware Capital, the boutique investment banking arm of Bradyware & Company. Uh, Bradyware Capital's mergers and acquisitions specialists help business owners and entrepreneurs understand, increase, and unlock the value of their businesses. Business owners often find that managing the complexities of transactions an overwhelming experience. You need an advocate who has your best interest in mind to evaluate the opportunity, find the right partner, structure, and close the deal. Bradyware's business brokers are here to ease the challenges and allow you to continue running your business throughout the transaction. And, you know, as we learned with Roger, selling your business on your own you can do it, but it's uh, it's it, it's hard. There's a reason investment bankers make the fees they do. It's not because we're it's not because we're all just nice guys. Cliff has more than 20 years of experience working with middle market companies. Formerly a senior vice president in commercial banking with a large regional bank, Cliff provides creative solutions relating to mergers, acquisitions, and capital raising projects. Cliff's creativity, combined with his extensive experience in structuring, negotiating, and executing transactions, equates to exceptional results for Bradyware clients. Cliff earned his undergraduate degree in finance from Indiana University and his MBA from the University of Dayton, Go Flyers. He holds the Series 7 and 24 securities registrations. 
Uh, Cliff was chosen as one of Dayton's 40 Under 40 Business Leader Award recipients and is a graduate of Leadership Dayton. Cliff is an active volunteer board member with the YMCA of Metropolitan Dayton and currently serves as the chair of its board of directors. I did not know that. He has also been a volunteer for Big Brothers Big Sisters of the Miami Valley and Junior Achievement in the Dayton Public Schools. Cliff, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. I look forward to our conversation. So you heard the intro and we've talked about this online, but let's let's sort of dive right in. Talk about as you know, from where you sit as somebody who does transactions day to day is really sort of in it. You know, how are valuations for business acquisitions, maybe generally, how are conditions for business acquisitions changed or have they changed due to the pandemic? Right. Well, Mike, it's a it's a question that we get all the time recently, and we spend a lot of time talking to people about it. I would say on a yeah, big picture, it depends, but more specifically. Uh, I, I think surprisingly valuations have held up very, very well. And I think there's a couple of things driving that. Uh, there's actually more capital out there than there, than there is good deals. So um, simple supply and demand. There's trillion dollars of private equity money out there looking to find a home to, to find good businesses. Uh, public companies have record amounts of capital cash on their balance sheet. Uh, and there's just not as many good companies now out there going to market. So uh, we're pleasantly surprised on valuations. Uh, we closed one transaction in the middle of the uh, uh, onset of the pandemic in you know March, early April, um, at a strong multiple, and we just uh, attended virtually a private equity conference uh, earlier this week. Talked to 40 different private equity groups. They're all confirmed we're ready and open for business. We want to find good, good fundamentally sound companies. So. Um, Deal flows good, and you know we're very optimistic about valuations. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing something similar. We've been we've been doing research to kind of just track multiples because you know we thought that multiples might be coming down a bit, and so for our estate and gifting clients, this is a great time to make transfers to trust, and you can burn less of your lifetime exemption, or if you're already above that, to incur less gift tax. But we're actually finding out that, um, that that valuations are holding up very well, as well. And, and I think I agree with you that, you know, there's just there's just capital out there, and the capital is 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 sitting on the sidelines. And you know, the the, the weird thing about that about capital, the way the way that works, and I know you know this, but for the benefit of our audience, is is that you know a lot of that capital is sort of earmarked for acquisitions, you know, because of the man, the way mandates work for private equity firms and so forth, you can't easily say, well, we're just going to switch and dump it into tech stocks or real estate or um, alpaca farms or something like that. Right. It kind of, it's having to chase acquisitions, isn't it? No, absolutely. And it's, it's organic growth is even more challenging now than it was before. So, you know, growth is what, what drives all values of businesses. So if, if you're going to pursue that strategy, you probably need to be in the acquisition mode. Um, a, a question that I think must come up a lot, it's certainly one that I think about a lot and I do encounter sometimes is, you know, if you're going to sell a business in this environment, do you, do you have to be nearly perfect in order to be saleable? To, do you have to be basically work-free in order to stand a chance of being sold? Uh, no, absolutely not. And if, if there was a near perfect 
company that we sold, it would be the first one. Um, every company, without exception, um, you know, has some issues that, that need to be addressed or could be addressed or less than perfect. That's the nature of business. Uh, and buyers understand that. So, you know, we think the key is to be self-reflective and, and, and understand what those are going into the process. And if we can work with a business owner, you know, three, six months, a year before they go to go to market, uh, we can address most of those issues. And, and we're used to working with them. Buyers understand that there's going to be issues. Uh, but, but, you know, we can always find a way to, to get over those hurdles. Uh, one thing that's very dangerous, though, is to ignore them and wait until the end of a transaction. And, you know, a couple of weeks before a potential closing, a buyer uncovers something that they weren't aware of. And that's going to do one of two things, either either end the transaction because of a lack of trust or it's it's going to have a, a very detrimental effect on the on the valuation. But but, you know, we enjoy working with companies that have some challenges. We think that we can be creative and help them help them address those and uh have had some very successful transactions with companies who, who quite frankly, when they talked to us, said, "Well, we're we're nowhere close to being ready." Yeah, one one thing I've uh, I've uh, I've observed over the years is uh, investors will and buyers can accept bad news if you're transparent about it, but they really don't like bad news that is surprising and late. <laughs> that 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 makes it ten times more damaging to the transaction than the bad news otherwise normally would be, right? Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a little bit like like buying a house. If if uh, you tell someone there's a small leak in the roof that needs to be fixed um, or you go ahead and fix it beforehand, that's okay. If you tell them everything's okay and they walk through the day after rain and there's puddles in the house, that's uh, they're probably going to move on to the next house. So let's uh, let's let's settle here on this topic for a minute because I think I think there's a lot of, of valuable stuff to get into, and that is you know I know you you like to and are good at helping businesses kind of take a self inventory and figure out you know what are those leaky uh, holes in the roof so to speak, and and how do you patch them up? So you know what are the what are the most common things that businesses ought to be looking at doing in terms of sprucing up their own business for acquisition that can reasonably address in a, you know, in, in a short term timeframe? Yeah. Great, great question. I wish more people would ask that um, more business owners, but a couple of things, Mike, I think um, number one is the accounting records. Um, and it doesn't just mean, you know, to have good audited statements or tax returns or something like that. I would say it's more the management information reporting. So, for example, most buyers are going to ask a, a, a company, can you break down your gross profit by customer? Can you break down your gross profit by line of business or, or product? And things like that. Things that, that may not relate directly to the bottom line income or being correct or incorrect, but it's how you get to that bottom line income. So, for example, if somebody has a, a customer that's um, a 30% concentration of their total revenue, the buyer wants to know what does that result in 50% of the total profit or is it a low margin business that even if they went away, it won't have much effect. Um, I would say over 50% of the companies that we deal with can't answer mm-hmm. that kind of bellwether question, gross profit by customer or product, but it's something that can be maybe not easily, but it, it, it can certainly be addressed. You know, interestingly, in, you know, in my world, one of the questions I always ask is, what are your key performance indicators? 
And, uh, you know, a lot of companies don't, don't really have one. At least they don't have them explicitly, right? The business owner, I think, internalizes them, but they, but they don't really have a process for recording and tracking them over time. And, you know, that, that along those lines, that is something in terms of management information, that's something that's hanging fruit that you ought to be able to, to adapt or update yourself or with relatively little cost, bring in a, a outside outsource CFO or controller or something and have to kind of track that. And uh, I, I agree with you. That's the kind of thing that can, that, that can really generate a high ROI because <clears throat> what it also, it helps the, the buyer understand the, the gears and cogs of how the business works too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and it helps them identify risks. So, you know, buyers are looking for two things, the growth opportunities. They want to understand that. And they also want to understand the risk, you know, what could go wrong with the deal. So that that's, that's one way to help them, help them understand it. And it's, it's really revealing sometimes to the business owner when we dig into that. And, and even if we don't get the perfect number, we can at least directionally help them understand where it is. And they'll say, well, I had no idea that I was doing all that work for that one customer, not making any money. Um, it changes the way they view their own business because not everyone, be clear, not everyone we work with ends up selling the business right now. Uh, they may be looking a year or two years out, and in the interim, they say, "Well, gosh, I can do, I can do these couple things to to really make make a much better result." Um, and Mike, the the second second topic is you asked what what are the things that can be addressed. Uh, the one thing that we really see sometimes being ignored is the second tier, second level management team. So if, if you're the, the, the owner and selling the business and you want to exit the business, then you bet you, it's really imperative that we have a good second level team. Because if you're going to leave the business and you have all the customer relationships, all the supplier relationships, you handle HR and everything else, but yet we tell a seller, well, I'm going to walk away that, you know, this person's going to walk away 90 days after closing. Um, that doesn't make, make people very confident. But if we can present a solid management team where there's three or four or five people who handle all the day-to-day operations and know the business and know the customers and, and almost make the selling shareholder irrelevant, um, that's a much better story to tell than, than, than the former. So I'd like to drill down with that uh, if I can, because uh, I, I think that's a very important observation. Um, how how do you set it up so that you can ensure or at least strongly encourage the continuity of that 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 management level, that second tier, or the bench the bench part of the management? Is it you know it, and assume for the moment maybe nothing's been done yet in terms of non compete agreements or anything like that. As a business owner, what what would the to do list look like to kind of tick off that 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 risk item? Yeah, that's. I, I think it's it's basically bringing the, the the rest of the management team under the tent, so to speak. You know, one of the challenges we have is a lot of owners say at the beginning, "We want I, I want to keep this quiet. I, I don't want anyone to know." So at at that point, we make it an economic exercise, Mike. It's like, okay, we can do that, but. If you take that approach, we think, for instance, your business is going to be worth $8 million. I'm picking a number, obviously. Yep. If we can bring in that second level management team and show the continuity and the growth, your business might be worth $12 million. So, you know, you can do some things. You can have your employees sign non-disclosure agreements, put some uh, 
put some incentives out there for them to get a transaction closed. Uh, surprisingly, most you know most business owners think as soon as employees find out there's going to be a transaction that they're going to put their resumes out and leave. Uh, surprisingly, it sometimes energizes that second level of management because they're saying, wow, this is my opportunity to shine. I can step up. I can be the main person. Uh, I'm going to have more resources. Um, so it's it, it can really be empowering to them. And, and just by including them in conversations, uh, we see a lot of energy injected into the process most of the time. Now, what about what about more concrete steps, putting things in like like non-compete agreements and or stay bonuses or change of control bonus programs or something? Um, have you have you seen those? Are those also tools that you can do to to manage that risk on behalf of the buyer? Yeah, absolutely. And it's very important because almost every business we deal with is is heavily dependent on, you know, a handful of people or even less, whether that be the exiting owner or the, the day-to-day manager or minority shareholder. So to be able to tie those people up and know that the continuity is going to be there is extremely important. Uh, the non-competes, as you mentioned, Mike, I think that's something that um, is not addressed very often by business owners. My opinion, that should be in place whether you're selling a business or not. Uh, because there's such a heavy, heavy reliance on 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 key people in a you know in a privately owned business. Yeah, and 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 the problem is once you once you reveal that you're going to sell, the the employee then all of a sudden has a lot of leverage. So, you know, the, the longer you wait to do that, the more expensive getting somebody to sign those agreements is going to be. So, you know, getting out in front of that today or yesterday. Is, is most likely going to be the easiest path for you as opposed to, hey, I want to sell my business. Would you, would, would you please sign this agreement that's going to commit you to work for the business so that I can get rich? Um, you know, they're going to want their piece of that as well. No, no, no question. And sometimes that can be done, as you said earlier, in, in conjunction with a you know, year-end bonus, maybe some, some incentive plans that get put in place, it's the stay bonuses that you talked about. You know, all very good tools that, that, you know, are good, quite frankly, though, for the owner and the employee. It's not a one-way street if, if you do it right. And we've also seen, you know, that there's a big reluctance for an owner to to bring other people under the tent, as I said. But if they present it to employees that, hey, not, not I'm selling the business and leaving, but we've grown this business together as far as we can. I've decided that to take it to the next level, we need to bring in outside capital. And I'm going to go explore options to bring in partners who can provide money and expertise to help us grow this business uh, quicker and farther than I could do it on my own. Uh, that's a heck of a lot better story than saying I, I just put the business up for sale and who knows what's going to happen. So that, that message is really important. And, and quite honestly, it's, it's a true story. I mean, the, the, the buyer coming in is typically going to put more resources in. They're going to hire more people. It, it's probably a misconception. It's not probably. It is a misconception that buyers are going to come in and cut costs. In the vast majority of situations, they're coming in and adding employees. They're adding equipment. They're adding infrastructure, IT capabilities. It's it's a net, net positive for the employees that stay most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. So let's switch gears here. What what kind of businesses are, are relatively attractive um, generally, and I guess when I say type of business, I'm, I guess maybe I'm thinking about both a minimum size profile as well as the, the nature of the industry and the nature of the business itself. 
And is that profile at all changing because of the impact of the pandemic? Yeah, another, another great question. Um, and again, I'm going to start by saying it depends, but then I'm going to get in a little bit more, more detail. I think what we've learned, and it, it hasn't changed um, with the pandemic, is the biggest thing that drives value, well, two things, growth and repeatability. So I think most business owners are probably trained to look at their financials by their banker, who is always looking in the rearview mirror. What did you do last year? Did you meet your covenants? All the banker cares about, did you make the minimum amount of money possible to pay the debt back? A buyer is taking a totally different approach. They're going to look at the history as kind of a starting point, but they care about what the business is going to be worth three, five, seven years out. So if it's doing $20 million in revenue, their question is, what can we do to make this a $50 million revenue business over time, uh, even if they have to invest more money in it? So that, that's by far the most important thing that's going to get a higher multiple. Uh, Mike, the second is the predictability and repeatability. So if, you know, if a company is, is has consistent earnings and grows 5, 10, 15% a year every year, uh, that's easier to put a value on than if they make uh, $4 million one year and two the next and six and then five and three. And it's it's project related and, and bumps all around. Uh, consistent earnings, consistent customers. You know, for instance, a security type company where uh, clients are sending in a check every month, month after month after month, and you can go back five years and see it's the same customer base. That company is going to be worth a lot more than a construction company who builds a hospital this year and has to go find a big school to build next year. And it's not a repeat customer. So, again, I, I can't stress enough growth and repeatability and consistency is what people are looking for. So um, you touched on something at the start of this conversation. I want to go back and, and address it explicitly, and that's that's about liquidity in the markets. You know, for those of us, most of us remember the last big recession wasn't that long ago. It was about a little bit over a decade ago. You know, we, the, the, the banks and financing sources really just sort of seized up, right, like throwing sand in, inside, of a, inside of a machine, basically. Um, I think it's tempting to make an assumption that that's the case this time around, but you, you tell me, is, is it, is it the same where it's hard to find liquidity, find acquisitions or are our capital sources or liquidity providers, are they still on the hunt for deals? Yeah, it's totally different from 2008 and, and either, and other um, situations before that, the, the capital is, is, is abundant. We're, as I said at the beginning, pleasantly surprised, uh, very surprised in some cases. Um, the liquidity in the market, both from the from the private sector and what the government has put in, you know, the PPP loans, things like that, um, it's caused the, the market not to miss a beat. Uh, we have seen senior banks, the commercial banks, have become a little bit more conservative. Uh, they've been busy with PPP loans. Uh, they're always going to be more cautious. So they're not being quite as aggressive on acquisition-related loans, but others are stepping up to fill the gaps. Uh, the mezzanine lenders, which without getting into a lot of details, are, are the private groups that will put money in that's kind of between the senior debt and the equity. Uh, that capital is flowing very strong. We talked to five or six of those just last week that confirmed that's the case. And then buyers are willing to put more equity in that deal, Mike, than they used to. Uh, because they have all the liquidity, the, the funds that have been raised, they need to put that money to work. If they think they can double the size of the business 
you know, it doesn't bother them to put in an extra 10 or 15% of equity to fill that gap that the senior debt used, used to have. So, um, you know, very strong driver of the market. And I, you know, I'm not a stock market guy, but I think that's what we've seen in the stock market too. People don't have anywhere else to put their money. So, um, a sure question you get asked all the time, and certainly I do very frequently, is, um, you know, say somebody does make a decision that, yeah, I'd like to sell my business, let's go. H- how long does that process take? And are you finding it's that that time frame is different from, you know, what it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, and it, 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 it depends on how organized the company is to start with. I mean, we get involved, you know, we've been involved in situations where maybe somebody has approached one company has approached a client and said, we want to put a deal together. Um, you know, that can be done in, in 90 days or less. I would say typically, you know, from the time that we start talking to somebody to get a transaction done, it's it's six months to a year, but it's driven by how prepared they are. Those items I talked about earlier, if their accounting and everything is in good shape and they're ready to go, you know, we can move pretty quickly. Um, I would say the timing for a deal has maybe, uh, maybe extended. 30 days from what it was before the pandemic, uh, but not a lot. Um, I think we've talked and I'm sure Roger did, you know, when he was um, your conversation earlier, due diligence is, is stringent. It's brutal. There's a lot of buyers. Valuations are good, but you better be ready because um, the due diligence is unrelenting. They're going to bring in outside accounting firms, uh, outside IT firms, environmental. Um, it's not unusual for, private equity to bring in um, a firm to do psychological profiles on the, on the management team. I mean, it is a tough process. And part of that is a game where one, they want to make sure that they're buying the company they think they're buying, but two, they're trying to drive down the price. And if they can come in and find those, those holes in the roof, they'll do it. Uh, Again, we're going to prepare and make sure that's not the case. Uh, But, but it is a tough process and, I'm coming from a biased position, but I'd hate to navigate that without without some help. Yeah, you you mentioned the types of due diligence action. That brings that actually brings up a question I'd I'd like to to kind of run by you. Um, I'm seeing I'm seeing more buyers now also retain cyber due diligence specialists um, because you know data security is so it's 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 become important. It's become expensive and you know, not a lot of companies have, have probably paid as much attention to it as they need to. Are you seeing the same thing? Is that also a, a big deal, especially if, if you're selling a company where people are working from home? Yeah, my, I, we haven't seen it a lot in the lower middle market. Some people touch on it. I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't become more prevalent because I agree with you. It's really important. I think people are starting to ask the question more and more though, with people working from home and the, um, the, the safety and security of the data. So um, let me, let me ask this just sort of generally. I think that there's a, I think there's a psychology that at least some potential seller where they say, you know what, I'm one of the reasons I'm selling is because there's this pandemic. I don't want to deal with it. So if I don't want the business, why would anybody else, right? Why would, why would anybody want to buy in, in a pandemic. And, and I, I appreciate this a little bit repetitive of what we've talked about, but I think it's worth kind of driving that, that point home. Can, can you explain kind of the mentality of how buyers are just, are generally looking at 
the pandemic, maybe because they feel like it's a temporary phenomenon or a risk that can be managed or, or some other perspective. But when you sit, when you get inside the head of the typical buyer that you work with, how do they view the pandemic generally in the context of acquisitions? Yeah. Okay. And then if I can, I'm going to touch on something else that you mentioned as, as a lead in there and some mentality of the seller as well. Um, we are seeing a lot of sellers that, you know, kind of say, I'm, I'm tired of this now, or maybe the opposite. Maybe they've been away from the office a little bit working remotely and say, you know, I like this. It's just, it's time for me to move on if I can get the value from my business. Um, so, and I think it's so important as a seller, right? I think there's a lot of business owners listening to this. It's not all about dollars and cents. There's a lot of emotion and, and, and personal preference in this. So when, you know, you might ask Mike and I, when should I sell my business? Uh, we can't answer that. You know, we can educate you on some of the facts, but it's a very personal decision. When is it time to walk away? Uh, we have some owners that are 80 years old that it's it's their life. You know, they're never going to sell. And I would tell them they shouldn't because they come in every day. It keeps them vibrant. It's what they like to do. There's others that are 45 that say, I, I view this as just like buying a stock. If you can give me the right number, I'm going to sell it. So um, to get back to your, I, I have a passion about that, though, as a, as a seller, you need to think about your life after selling. Quite honestly, most people, when they sell, are going to have enough money to live happily ever after if we do our jobs right, which we will. But from a, from a lifestyle and day-to-day, you know, what am I going to do? That's really important. Um, so I'm sorry to take a detour there. But on the, the buyers are looking for what platform is there. What, what are the fundamentals of the business? And is there a good platform there that we can take and we can grow it? Um, so they're, they're, they're looking at that second level management team. They're looking at customers. They're looking at what, what's there when the, when the owner leaves. So I don't think it has affected the pandemic itself hasn't affected the mentality of buyers. Uh, it makes them a little bit more critical, uh, on looking, digging into the business and saying, what, what's the long-term effect of the pandemic going to be on this, on this business? You know, if they're looking to buy a hotel, they may look at that differently than they did six months ago, because the question is, are the business travel ever going to come back to where it did? Uh, but somebody that's manufacturing parts for, for cars, you know, cars are going to be manufactured next year and the year after and 10 years after. Um, they're going to dig in a little bit deeper to see what those levels may be. But, you know, still the mentality is that there's there's pretty critical businesses out there that are going to be steady. So um, let, let's switch gears uh, here into to something else. You know, in, in my world, of course, I, I'm a business appraiser. So I'm, I'm in the business of, of trying to help clients understand the value of either what they've got or what they, they'd like to acquire. And, um, you know, an often overlooked and I think frequently underappreciated element of any transaction is the terms of that transaction. And in fact, a, a dear friend of mine years ago, um, taught me that you know uh, you can you can sell at almost any valuation you want as long as you're willing to completely roll over on the terms right the, the terms are important they're not as sexy as the headline number but but they they can offset or outweigh any value advantage you may think that you're getting and and one of the most important terms that you see particularly in the sale of a small closely held business is that earnout provision. And so that's a long-winded preamble to the to the, to the short question, which is this: you know, how prevalent are earnouts generally, and 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 how 
how have earnouts changed, if at all, due to the pandemic conditions out there? Yeah, it's a great question because earnouts usually get discussed in most deals that we're involved in. Um, I'll tell you, we're um, pushed back very hard against that. You know, we want to make sure that the cash up front is, is sufficient to, to meet all the goals of our seller. Um, you know, our announcer are tough. We've certainly seen some that work well, but it's, it's tough. It's slanted to the buyer because they're going to be the one keeping the score. So we really work hard to minimize that. That being said, they're, they're inevitable on some deals. And like the thing that's going to almost always result in an earnout um, are a couple of things. One, uh, being a high customer concentration. So if, uh, you know, if a company has 70% of their revenue to one customer, the buyer, and probably rightly so, is going to say, hey, if I come in there and that, and that relationship goes away completely or, or, or starts to decline, I can't make that up quick enough to, to get the value out of the business. Um, so what we're going to do in that situation, though, is try and structure that on, a, on an earnout based on revenue. As we say, we like to have earnouts based on the numbers higher up in the income statement versus the EBITDA down at the bottom of the um, income statement, because that's a lot of funny things can go into that to calculate it once the transaction happens. Uh, the second thing would be back to the topic we talked about early, Mike, would be the, the predictability. Um, if a buyer is looking at a business that seems to jump around year after year, they're going to want to put more into the earnout. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the customer yeah. concentration. I think that when I, when I, when our team performs uh, uh, business appraisals, putting startups aside because startups are different animals. If it's a if it's an established operating business, I think the the biggest source or the the yeah the biggest driver behind a risk adjustment to value is customer concentration. Um, you know, and unfortunately, customer concentration is not something that's easy to change in 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 the short term um you know the best you can do maybe is to convince the buyer that you know once the but if, if it's a if it's an existing buyer that's synergistic then maybe the customer concentration issue isn't as big a deal because it's, it's in a larger portfolio but 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 yeah that customer concentration issue is is big if there's one you know there are several takeaways that people should be taking out of this conversation but one generally even if you're not going to sell your business today is you know, if you have a customer concentration issue, and I, I, I'm curious, Cliff, I'll ask you to define that if you can. I define that as, you know, I think customer concentration starts to become an issue when you have one customer that accounts for at least 10% of annual revenue or more. Um, and then, you know, the, it goes up from there, right? You need to be thinking a lot about how do you, re, how do you reduce your reliance on that, on that one customer? Because, you know, over time, that can de-risk the business significantly and get you a lot of value. Um, so, 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 Cliff, actually, I'd love to get your perspective, if you can. I didn't prepare you for this question. It may be entirely unfair, but sort of gut feeling, at what point in, in your mind does customer concentration start to become an issue? Do you, do you generally agree with me, or do you have a different sort of uh, trigger point? Yeah, I think it's... it's it- it depends on the whole makeup of the customers, but I'd say probably, yeah, 15, 20% really gets on somebody's radar. Um, but it depends, you know, if there's a 30% concentration, but the other 70, 70% is from 20 customers, then it's not as big of a deal. If there's 30% and, you know, the remaining is only another seven or eight, 
that that's going to be a bigger issue. But I'll say it's 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 very typical. Most businesses started out supporting one customer, and and you know you're not going to say no to a customer. So you know, we would never recommend, hey, turn business away from this customer to reduce your reliance on them. You know, hopefully you can go grow the rest of the business to make it a lower number. But it's 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 a tough issue. Um, I, I will say, and I guess follow up the last question. I think you'd ask about specifically the pandemic and if that's changed things. Yeah. I think earnouts are a little bit more prevalent now, just because earnings are a little bit less predictable. It, it goes back to that issue of predictability. Um, if the company has performed consistently throughout the pandemic, uh, then our position would be it doesn't warrant an earnout, and we're going to push pretty hard to um, structure a deal that doesn't have an earnout or, or, or minimizes it, certainly. Um, and again, I think this is really important from my perspective and experience and seeing how earnouts work out. Uh, if an earnout can be structured as icing on the cake, then we can usually accept that and we can move ahead and we can protect it and do a pretty good job of getting most of the earnouts. Uh, if you're relying on that earnout, because I say live happily ever after, you know, and that if I don't get this earnout, I don't have enough money to live the way I want to live, then I won't do the deal because you're going to bring in more stress to yourself. You're not going to be able to control it. Uh, and you're in really a position of weakness at that point. Uh, now, most of the time we can structure it such that such that there's enough cash up front and, uh, you know, protections going forward. But Mike is an advisor, and, and I've advised people to walk away from deals, even though it means a deal not happening and a fee not happening. You know, if the earnout is too much um, and you're going to be relying on it, you got to take a hard look at it. Yeah, you know, that's a good point because, you know, there, there is a, a certain point after which, you know, if, if there's so much of a, of a back-end earnout, then you're not really selling a business so much as you are taking a job with a heavy bonus component. Um, and, and, you know, and if that's your goal, fine, but, you know, understand it's important to understand what you are actually doing. You know, some earnout can be so heavy that it's, it's a, it's really taking a job disguised as a business sale. And, and that may not necessarily be what you, you know, what, what, what you, um, we're talking with uh, with with Cliff Bishop of Bradyware Capital uh, on the Decision Vision podcast about uh, should I try to sell my business during uh, the COVID uh, epidemic, and uh, we just have time for a couple more questions before we got to let you get out of here and and help some more clients. Um, but w- one question I want to make sure we get to before we get out of here it's a technical question: is have you seen any change um, on behalf of buyers in terms of their preference? of asset purchases versus stock purchases has has the pandemic changed kind of how they how they view their preferences in that regard or is that still purely tax driven yeah i would i would say it's probably tax and risks driven um we haven't seen a change specific to the pandemic i would say informally um you know over the last three or four years it's probably about 50 percent stock and 50 percent asset um, you know, the, our sellers typically want to do stock and, and it can be, you know, for, for tax reasons. But I'll be honest, if it's structured the right way, there's not always as much difference between stock and asset as a seller may think. You know, back to your point about structure, um, we can do a asset sale and still get them a lot of the, the 
tax treatments by purchase price allocation and things like that. So um, again, that's why it's really important to understand those things going into a transaction because if we're proactive on telling potential buyers, this is how we expect it to be structured and this is how you need to make your, your offer, then we're more likely to get that result than if we just throw it out there and hope for the best. So Cliff, we are, we're time, but there, as usual, I, I haven't gotten close to through all the questions that I'd like to ask and probably that our, our listeners have. Um, if somebody wants to follow up with you and ask questions about you know, potentially selling their business and, and during the pandemic, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'd, I'd love to talk to people. I, I, I really enjoy talking to business owners on, on this topic, whether they're ready to sell tomorrow or next year or, you know, five years from now. It's, 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 it's conversation that, um, you know, can, can really set the stage for a successful transaction, but I enjoy doing it. So I'd encourage any of you listening, happy to talk to you formally or informally. Uh, I would say we're pretty good at being able to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. You know, some of these topics we've hit, uh, valuations, what earnouts might be, what some of the challenges you might have in your business, you know, how we can do those things. So feel free to reach out to us. Um, and it'd either be me or some of our other team who have expertise in different industries. Um, you can reach me by email. It's on our website, but it's uh, C Bishop, C-B-I-S-H-O-P at Bradyware.com. And my direct phone number is 937-913-2538. But sincerely, feel free to reach out to us and uh, love to talk to you. Great. Thank you, Cliff. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'd like to thank Cliff Bishop so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, aggregator, it helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Warren Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you.